Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to The Times. To find out more, head to thetimes.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the Times Opinion podcast. Tim Montgomery is off doing something valuable for voters and other people in Manchester at the moment. Uh, and he's given his seat to me, David Aronovich. My guests in the podcast this week are Faye Schlesinger, who's the home news editor here at the Times, and my fellow columnists, Daniel Finkelstein and Melody Phillips. John Stewart, the American comedian, played it straight on his chat show last week. If Islamist terrorists had massacred nine people in a church, he said, the repercussions would be huge. Because Dylan Roof killed under the banner of homegrown racism, the country will do, and I quote, jack shit. Debate about the Charleston attack cannot be reduced to failed gun laws or America as an outlier. Britain and Europe need to take heed. The idea that the mistakes of the pollsters require state-sponsored regulation as suggested in a new private member's bill before Parliament is totally balmy. But we don't know why the polls were wrong, and we're never going to know. So what we're going to have to try to do is live with our ignorance. As the Palace of Westminster crumbles, on one side are MPs singing We Shall Not Be Moved, on the other, people wanting to hang constitutional change on the scaffolding. All they've got to do is move out for a few years and then move back. End of story. As you can see, we've been incredibly ingenious and we're not even talking about Greece this week. Faye, um, on your point about Jon Stewart um, and the issue of whether or not the uh, Charleston shooting should be dubbed as terrorism and what follows from it. What is the heft of the argument here? I'm not sure he's making the argument that it should be labelled terrorism. I think he's talking about the reaction and the response and he's saying that, I mean, in his words, and it's a slightly extreme point that I don't necessarily follow all the way through, you know, if you had Islamist extremists carrying out this kind of attack, there would be a global response, which might be, I mean, he's talked about war and um, search for weapons of mass destruction. Um, obviously, 9-11 was, was a bigger deal because far, far more people were killed and it does have wider um, implications. However, what he's saying is that he thinks nothing will happen on the back of this. And I've got to say that part of it, I sort of agree with. The debate um, on the back of Charleston has been predominantly about gun laws 
um, or about America, and those two things are obviously intertwined. Um, we wrote a leader in this newspaper, um, a leading article, saying that basically gun law, the failure to reform gun laws has been the predominant uh, f- uh, factor in, in Charleston that led to Charleston. Um, on the back of the Sandy Hook massacre, Obama failed to get any reforms through. And by doing that, I think we as a country, Britain and as Europe as well, are distancing ourselves from the problem of racism and of a, an underlying racism that exists in this country and across Europe. And we, we presume it's, it's more American thing. There's some kind of, it seems to me, quite big logical leaps going on there. I mean, we can come back in a moment to the question of whether or not something should be dubbed terrorism uh, for the purpose of taking it seriously. But since he can hardly be arguing that we should bomb Afghanistan because of Dylan Roof, um, it's difficult to know what he wants people to do and to think, which shows that he takes it more seriously. Well, Danny, you're, 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 you're... Yeah, perhaps, perhaps actually uh, we need some sort of uh, uh, empathy with John Stewart. I think if you're an American... Um, liberal or indeed an American centrist it must be unbelievably frustrating to see these kind of terrible crimes committed over and over again and feel partly because of the constitution and partly because of the way that political attitudes in America are are, are arrayed you can't do anything about the, the gun problem, which is so clearly at the heart of this incident and many incidents like it. I think it must be incredibly frustrating. So while I do think this is a bit of an ill-focused remark and the comparison isn't quite right, I do understand why he feels the way that he does and why almost anything other than a, a real cry of pain from somebody like him would be inappropriate. Man, could we describe Dylan Roof as a terrorist? Yes, I think you certainly can describe him as a terrorist. Um, uh, you know, terrorism is violence committed for a political uh, purpose, and that seems to be the case. I, I think this is an American problem, particularly an American problem. America has a particular problem with guns and a particular historic problem with race. Um, most societies have a racial problem. We have a racial problem here. But it's nowhere near the scale and the nature of America. But the real point about John Stewart's remark, which I find very off, is to say, you know, the rest of the world is not reacting in the same way as it would have done had it been an Islamist attack. Well, obviously not. The reason why we react in the way that we do to Islamist attacks is that they're going on across the world. They are a global phenomenon. They are part of a global jihad movement. However terrible this um, attack was in America, and it was truly terrible, and there are more that have happened similarly in the past, and I'm afraid will happen again, it is not a global problem. It is an American problem. Faye? I disagree with the fact that it's an American problem entirely. Obviously, I agree on the fact of scale. I think that, uh, gu- guns are more predominant in America. That's just a fact. Nobody can disagree with that um, compared to, say, say, Britain. And you could argue that the... I mean, the there are more people in America. The ability of the internet to to join together, for example, white supremacists, is, is there, and is you know, um, it, it's just a fact across the world. And you've got more people in America, so that's possibly um, has an impact. But to write it off as what I'm worried about is that we're writing it off as an American problem, and therefore pretending there isn't a or there isn't a risk that we're on that same scale, on the sliding scale, but further down it in Britain. I do think there's a. I mean, we, we had the British Social Attitudes Survey recently, which showed this uptick. In, in racism and we can find lots of reasons for that you know whether it be um, the rise of um, uh, of, of extreme um, Islam whether it be austerity there's lots of uh, factors that people weigh in there but there is a, a rising level of racism according to that survey and it's it's got its flaws that survey definitely but to, to pretend that that the same thing could not happen here I think is wrong 
you need a cocktail of, of um, circumstances for something to happen like in, in Charleston. It could be drugs, it could be mental health problems, it could be availability of weapons, but it can happen here and, and we should sit up and not overreact and not bring in loads of extra laws, but just be aware that that could happen here. And, it, and, and, and you know, along the years, uh, Britain has done various things that America hasn't done um, in order to prevent this from happening, such as, for example, abolishing slavery before they got round to it and, and virtually having a war with them over that. So uh, I, I completely... I, I, there can't ever be anything wrong with somebody both having a cry of pain over an incident like this and also pointing out that there is there are racial um, tensions everywhere in the world and we have to do a lot more to try to eradicate them. But I so I can't object I can't object to somebody but using But Danny, this I thought something rather point. more than that actually, which is this kind of cry you sometimes get um, which is you're not taking this seriously enough because I thought that the one thing that was certainly true about the Charleston shooting was that everybody did take it really seriously and yet there are still people saying you're not taking it sufficiently seriously. Well I don't, you, I'm not sure I take them saying that I'm not taking it seriously enough all that seriously. Um, the, the, well, you the, 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 the truth <laughs> is no because the, because I'm not sure that he's measuring how seriously I take it. I, we've never met so I don't think he can take that view. I think he's just saying let's take it seriously um, and um, at that level I take his remarks I think, seriously. Uh, well I'm sorry I think you're wrong I think he is actually saying you in the generality are not taking it seriously enough it's almost a, a reserved position but moving on very slightly and this is what I was going to ask about uh, uh, because you understand the value of symbols one of the immediate things that's happened in America is since they can't do very much about guns you can maybe do something about flags uh, and so you've got this whole argument about the flying of the Confederate flag. Obviously, it's one of the symbols which Dylan Roof used in, in addition to the South African flag and so on. Why is the uh, Confederate flag still so potent? I mean, after 150 years? Well, you know, actually... Uh recently studying George Washington and, and, and Alexander Hamilton and realising the kind of deep-seated nature of slavery in the uh, creation of the, of the United States of America and the, the crea and the differences between the South and North on it is simply a big division in that country that has never been eradicated. And we may, we may for example, cover with, uh, with uh, incredulity um, the role that tribal uh, loyalties play in Kenyan elections in exactly the same way as Southern and um, uh, the southern and northern differences play a big role in American politics and it's actually for most people I suspect in this country were completely incredulous that people still fl uh, flew the uh, confederate flag forgetting that it was a battle as much about um, the independence of states versus the centre as it was about the nature of those states' policies. And it wasn't just about um, slavery, but a lot of it was about that. And I think, therefore, they are right to, at this point, make that symbol part of the campaign to try to introduce racial tolerance between South and North. And this still remains an issue in America you know, hundreds of years after the original cleavage. It is remarkable that this still remains an issue, and I do think symbols are important. I think in this country we tend to tell ourselves the cliché, you know, America is the melting pot. Um, there are many people in this country who, you know, who've, who've exhorted us over the years to look to America as the kind of paradigm nation of everyone getting on just fine with everybody else. Everyone's a hyphenated American. And what this obscures is that America is a country of the most extraordinarily deep polarized uh, attitudes and fissures, social fissures, between black and white, between north and south. Um, and these uh, fissures have never been uh, mended. They're still very raw. There's, there is something amazing, Faye, which is still, um, I was thinking about just the other day, which is the idea of black churches 
or white churches. The fastest growing racial group in Britain is people who describe themselves as being mixed race uh, and so on. And yet, and of course, Barack Obama himself actually is a mixed race person, his uh, mother was white and so on. And yet there still seems to be a separation over there, which is dramatic. Why, and why must black people marry black people and white people marry white people? But the, the, maybe not to the same extent, but you get black churches in London. I mean, I live virtually next door to one um, in, um, in Oval, and it is a predominant, I mean, a wholly black con- congregation. It's not just predominantly a black congregation. And there are, I mean, people obviously gravitate towards sameness. And, and if, if, you've, if you want to have um, prayers and hymns, for example, a real celebratory church, you might go in that direction because you come from a particular part of the Caribbean and it's, it's that culture. If you want to do something like Quakerism, which is the total opposite of that and has no singing whatsoever, you get a predominantly white congregation within a, within a, a Quaker That's almost house. a parody, isn't it's, it? I mean, we're almost self-parodies too, if that's yeah. true. But I mean, there's a, there's a question mark over whether that's a problem or not. It can become a problem if people feel excluded or people start to feel angry and obviously Dylan Roof started to feel angry wrongly of course but that that's the fissures that, that Melanie's referring to I would argue that they exist here too not to the same extent but by pretending it's more an American problem we're ignoring them slightly. Uh, thanks very much for that Faye. Um, there is no adequate segue between this and our next subject which is uh, the inadequacies of polling in inadequacies of polling in Britain if someone can invent one I'll happily listen to it but I don't think there is um, uh, Danny you're going to be um, your you, your major topic for this week is um, is the question of what we can tell about polls and pollsters I've had it put to me several times now in various forms that actually now there is no point whatsoever in ever looking ever again at a poll to find out anything. Well, um, that's too extreme a position. Um, Obviously, you can tell things from opinion polls. um, And, uh, for example, in the last general election, um, I think there was a lot of information to be provided by asking people who they preferred as Prime Minister, Ed Miliband or David Cameron. There was an awful lot of information in asking people whom they trusted on the health service, Labour or the Conservatives. There was a lot of information in how, um, in all sorts of questions like uh, who's economically more competent. Uh, what I think is true is that it isn't a very good idea to try to rely on people's expression of their own voting intentions through opinion polls uh, in order to predict the general election. But there's a bit of good fortune we have here. Is we don't actually have to predict the results of the general election. We'd like to, uh, because we all like to know what's going to happen before it happens. Uh, but the reality is that we can't. This struck me um, with great force when I listened to a group of um, pollsters talking in a session that I was chairing that was organised by the Royal Statistical Society and it suddenly struck me, we don't know why they were wrong, they don't know why they were wrong and we're never going to be sure because their explanations are contradictory and they and um, they will some of them will appear plausible but they'll be contradictory with others that also appear plausible. Well, Danny, let me ask you an obvious question um, uh, about this and there are many several and uh, everybody wants to come in. Um, we are coming up to... Uh, <laughs> up to a referendum on the European Union. Is there any point in quoting what any poll says about what opinion appears to be on the subject of the European uh, Union? Or should we just not bother? Well, first of all, um, we don't need to. Uh, it's not necessary in order but we're to, going conduct, to. It doesn't it's not necessary in order to conduct the argument on Europe. Uh, it doesn't really um, it shouldn't it may influence it, but it shouldn't assist us really in our, in our comprehension of anything. Um, secondly, 
Actually, of course, the polls, um, when they're that uh, widely apart, they probably are broadly useful in broadly telling us uh, what people think, and that may be useful in developing strategies or knowing what people are concerned about. I'm certainly not of the view that no uh, either qualitative or quantitative estimation of what public opinion is uh, should be used in politics. I've, been, I'm ex I've used it extensively myself and it's very valuable in terms of uh, developing analysis of what people think and that's democratic. But um, what I do think is that to base certainty in predictions of 
um, ratings that were in the polls on election day, those by themselves would have predicted the election results. That suggested the sample was correct. Here are two totally plausible uh, arguments. Both of them seem right, and they can't both be right. Fine, but that's fine. But then that leads inescapably to the conclusion that these pollsters haven't got the faintest idea what they're doing. Well, I think that's too strong. Um, I think that I think that uh, first of all, there were lots of things in the polls that got right. They were correct when everyone said they were wrong about how many people would vote UKIP. Uh, they were correct when it did seem pretty extraordinary about what proportion of people would vote Liberal Democrat. Um, they were also correct that people massively preferred David Cameron to Ed Miliband as Prime Minister, and they were correct that people massively prefer, thought the Conservatives were more economically competent. Uh, so there were there's lots in the polls that were that were correct, um, but they did get the Conservative. They did, and they've, this is something they've done before overestimate Labour against the Conservatives and it's obviously a pretty important thing so it's not true we can't tell anything from it but what we can't do and and, it, and this is another point, even if they had been completely correct um, 6% is probably just each end of the margin of error in a single poll. Right. Isn't it, 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 hasn't Danny got a point to this extent which is the kind of reliance that let's say, and please take this the right way, news desks sometimes place on polls columnists occasionally, news has certainly, <laughs> is actually something we've got to grow out of. In other words, we overinterpret madly because we're desperate for some information that we don't have. The alternative to that is to send reporters out into the field who speak to eight people in the street and then come back and say, I might get the sense of this going on. I mean, there are sometimes occasionally other ways of doing it, but it's actually extraordinarily difficult to gauge. And that leaves us flying blind. And we can't stand that, can we? It we do both those things. So we were ha- we had not just a reporter talking to, to eight households, but reporters talking to hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of households over the campaign. And it was fascinating. There were interesting debates between Peter Kellner of YouGov and a reporter who'd been on the road reporting two totally different things. In some cases, the reporter was right. In some cases, Peter Kellner was right. So we do all those things. Yes, you're absolutely right that we do feed. We have a sort of feeding frenzy off these polls. I do think on the back of this absolute shock election uh, result or the discrepancy between the exit poll and, and what we'd heard up until then will make us more careful. It doesn't mean we won't keep reporting the polls, but we might report them with, with a counterweight. Uh, I'm going to move. I know I, there are loads of fingers going. Oh, go on then, Danny. He's usually <laughs> desperate. People are very thirsty for this piece of information. Robert Cialdini did some work on how to get people to save electricity. Tell people who Robert Cialdini uh, the, is. Robert Cialdini, a, a social psychologist, did some work on how to get people to estimate to reduce their electricity use. And he discovered that the only thing that worked was telling them how much their neighbour was using the only thing of all the arguments that he used. So voters are very hungry for information about how other voters are going to vote because it's one of, but they'd like it to be the the problem is we may have to live with telling them we cannot accurately provide you with that piece of information. Unbearable. Absolutely (laughs) unbearable. I bet by the time we get to the next election we won't. Um, uh, Melanie, the House, House of Parliament, uh, the Palace of Westminster, as you say, is uh, falling down. Uh, bits are falling off. Although I have to say that it's a very sudden piece of information. So I don't remember all the political correspondents going on about it before, but they've all discovered it and, it, and it's happening. And the question of moving out. Okay, you take a very phlegmatic view of this, whereas some other people might say, look, here is a really good opportunity to do some stuff that we should have done a long time ago. Well, by stuff, you mean uh, constitutional revolutionary change. Um, That's fine. If people want to do that, I have no problem with having that argument. But these are political 
decisions, whether you decentralize to the regions, whether you uh, limit the numbers of members of parliament or the numbers of peers. Um, uh, These and other matters are perfectly uh, reasonable to discuss, but they shouldn't be done, as it were, uh, under the cover of the scaffolding. Um, Architecture should not dictate constitution. Uh, Our political system should dictate the architecture. And the architecture, you know, uh, is uh, designed to be confrontational. It's designed to be adversarial. Uh, You have a government uh, facing an opposition. Um, And that seems to me to work pretty well, because I support, you know, first past the post and adversarial politics. Now, there are people who don't, that's fine, that's their privilege. But don't then come along and say, oh, the fact that they're going to have to move out means we can just knock the place down and have a wonderful semicircular, tastefully decorated Scandinavian pine version uh, where we can all be harmonious and get rid of adversarial politics and all sing kumbaya. I mean, that's a point of view, but don't let's do it on the basis that they actually need to move out because there are mice and it's a fire hazard. Is that what they do in the Danish Parliament, all sing kumbaya? (laughs) Um, Not anymore, not after the last election, I rather suspect. Uh, uh, Faye, on, just on this question of, let's say, um, of moving Parliament out of London, you sit here with a group of metropolitans, Londoners, and you are not a Londoner. What do you think, seriously, about the possibility or the proposition that Parliament could actually move out of London? I think it won't happen, and I think it shouldn't happen. For purely logistical reasons, there are more people in the capital. I do, I mean, I'm very heavily behind the fantastic Tory policy of the Northern Powerhouse, capped up, of course. Um, you know, I do think that we should be devolving more powers to, to, to regions outside London. But in terms of our parliament, it needs to be where most people are. For, for, for You know, we already make hay from stories about the cost of taxis and things like that. They'll only go up, I'm afraid. So I do think you should stay in London. It, it doesn't necessarily have to be in Westminster. Um, I was trying to think last night where we might put it. Um, the Olympic Park is a, a big area at the moment where not the plans for things to happen, but there's lots of space there. Um, that would be a, a possible idea. The other thing I think we should do is if all the MPs do move out, and they'll definitely have to move out for at least two years, if not um, more than that, we should make a... Um, we should have fun with what's going on within the works of, you know, we should make the scaffolding transparent so you can see what's happening inside. We should create a museum of the works that are going on. This country's really good at building works, engineering. I mean, Crossrail is another example where there are fantastic tunnelling skills. And I don't really think enough was made of them. We should be celebrating the way that we can overhaul a building which should be knocked down and we know should be knocked down really but we won't do that we'll renovate it it'd be incredible actually you make a very good point because the poppies at the tower suggested that we were very good at turning things into really good bits of public art spectacle yeah. uh, that capture people's uh, imagination so we're against moving out of London Dan you must be very much in favour as a member of the House of Lords moving Parliament outside London you <laughs> very much like to see it in Lichfield um, well I, you know I think Melanie South made France. a very very important point in her excellent column actually which was uh, that you can't let the individual comfort of people uh, in a short run determine this very big decision and obviously when you're rebuilding something you have to do that in the most convenient way and people just have to suck it up. Um, In 1834 when they were burning tally sticks under the House of Lords they burnt the whole of the Palace of Westminster down so what we have is 160 years old and when they rebuilt it it was as Faye suggested a massive public competition Uh, it was all the stuff that's in the House of Lords is designed to do two things one is to demonstrate that despite all the other countries having revolutions in 1848 we had a continuous democracy so it's like a sort of theme park of history. Uh, and um, uh, the, the other thing was to replicate uh, some of the um, st- uh, 
sort of uh, designs that were there in the palace before, uh, in terms of, for example, the House of Commons had been in a chapel. Uh, this is the reason why they sit opposite each other in rows, and so that was repeated in the new chamber, but as part of a big artistic competition. So what Faye is suggesting, uh, that is very much in the spirit of how the House of, uh, of Palace of Westminster was created. So I completely agree with that. But I think basically this is one of those things where I think it was you, Melanie, who used the kitchen uh, analogy. Um, you know, if you rebuild it, you have to move uh, out and uh, while it's being redone. And this is what we should do. Um, I uh-huh. think it is a beautiful building. So I think, and a, and a massive, one of those sort of, you know, massive architectural features of the world, very familiar. So I think we should refix it where it is. It, we should use it as a parliament building. But, but everyone cooler, has to move. Bring in some modern, you know, we can keep the building well, looking the same from the outside historically, but we can bring, you know, I want a hologram of, David Cameron standing up at PMQs if he's not there, for example. You know, we can do all that. We, can we, we, can, we can, but I'm well, going to accuse expensive. all three of So you just on that, it's easy, expensive. So I, I sit on the Works of Art Committee of the House of Lords. Um, what? Which is, which, the works of you art sit com- on the Works of Art yes, Committee of the which House is, of which Lords. Is, which if can, you want to complain, listen, <laughs> about a work of art in the House of Lords, write to daniel.finkelstein at Correct. the time. So the, jo- the job of this, um, of this committee is partly to look to tend the because the, the House of Parliament has one of the great collections of British political art, of, of political historical art, and um, one of the Name things one. that this, one of the things that, well, you know, uh, a, a painting of uh, the. George Grenville, the fifth prime minister, right? So you you have For which a sixth big demand. So you so but obviously there ought to be a portrait of one of our prime ministers somewhere, and that, that's where that the House of Lords has got that, or the House of Parliament has got it. Now, the, the reason I raise that point when you raise the hologram is quite correctly the budget. For that for for the odds of the House of Parliament is very low, and even the purchase of a picture of a prime minister which Parliament doesn't possess uh, and which hard, which hardly exists, you have to think about hugely because it's public money and we've got so many other things that are more important to spend it on. Equally, so donations problem, can be made. Thank God, thank God. So the problem people with like you to do this thinking for us because I think it would. Uh, I, I want to accuse all three of you of conservatism uh, here. <laughs> Uh, unfortunately, at least two of you don't think that that's much of an accusation. Um, it seems to me ludicrous that the House of Commons is sits as it as it currently does. If I look at a piece of really of purpose-built uh, architecture for a Parliament like the Reichstag, it's infinitely superior. The notion that you don't have electronic voting, but that you have to go through the lobbies, which even then MPs have to get uh, have to have to get uh, well, quite often get wrong. I mean, no, but I, I, I mean, there's a whole series of things that we could that, do. Because you see, the thing about electronic voting, just to give you an example, because it shows how we could argue about each of these. things until the whole building sinks into the sea. Electronic voting is an argument about whether or not people need to be physically present in the area in order to vote. There, there is an electronic system being introduced in the division lobbies, so you don't have to actually write everybody's name down. And obviously, that's sensible. But should somebody be able to vote in a parliamentary debate when they're not actually physically anywhere near the parliamentary Well, debate? of course they should. Right. Well, of course they should, because actually, as you well know, and everybody well knows, and anybody who's with MPs within the distance of the division bell knows, you'd have MPs who are taking no notice of the debate whatsoever, who then rush back to vote. Now, why they ha- can't do that, that from Manchester? Yes, but, again, um, but again, that is an issue which we should all have out, the behaviour of our members of Parliament. Are they actually uh, paying enough attention? Are they be- being any more than fi- notionally physically present? It's not an argument which one says, oh, well, you know, we're 
we're, we're doing a bit of rewiring. What a good opportunity to have electronic voting. We're not talking <laughs> about we're not talking about simple simple uh, uh, architectural or electronic or mechanical features. We're talking about how we actually run our country, and we shouldn't do one on the back of the other. Don't you think it would be better, all three of you, if the how, current House of Palace of Westminster was turned into a museum, a really beautiful museum of democracy, and we built a new purpose-built parliament somewhere else. Why? Why should we? What, what's wrong with this one? For Apart from anything else, this is not simply our parliament. This is a global symbol of democracy in the, in the, in the very seat of democracy. Yes. Sneer as you may. No, no. Well, in, that case, in, that case, in that case, let it be a symbol, no, because that's David, exactly what a museum David, of democracy David, would be. No, but we don't, we don't make it. We won't do but you're on my side, aren't you? A museum. Not at all. I just think it's beautiful. Right, well, I'm going to end the When I moved down to London, it was just a beautiful building, and for that reason... I say keep it. No, no, I know that you want red Unfortunately, lines. Unfortunately, everybody, <laughs> <laughs> as you've all decided to gang up on me, we've run out of time. Oh thank God. you very, thank you very much. Don't this is how my parliament would be. That's right. <laughs> uh, we've now all voted in favour of my uh, unanimously for my proposition. Uh, the general secretary has won yet again. My very big thanks to Faith Schlesinger, Daniel Finkelstein, and Melanie Phillips. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.